For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at how teachers and parents at Imago Day Middle School are approaching the new school year. Adiba Nelson offers a remembrance of her friend, Andre Newman. And here the third part of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, transgenerational advice in which a Tucson trans boy interviews a transgender man about his experiences. Those stories are all next on Arizona Spotlight. With more than 20,000 coronavirus cases identified in Pima County, all public and private schools in the Tucson Unified School District are providing remote learning options. Select locations will be open to serve students at risk, those who are more likely to drop out of school without support. Imago Day Middle School, a free private school for low-income families, opted for distant learning for the first quarter of the new school year. We'll find out more next in this story produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. Typically, we would start back up at the beginning of August, but we've made the decision to push back our start date for classes until August 31st. We firmly believe that we did an incredible job pivoting to remote learning in the spring, and we had very high attendance rates and high levels of engagement, and the students stayed really connected to school. But the truth is remote learning is really challenging and the kids just don't learn as much as they would in person. Cameron Taylor, the director of Imago Day, says the current epidemiological situation made the school opt for the worst case scenario, which is distant learning at least for the first quarter. Unlike last spring, this time the school is better prepared. However, Taylor says low-income families are being hit harder than those in the middle class. Half of our families did not have access to the internet or laptop or a computer of any kind. Almost all of them, their only source of internet or technology was a phone, which just really doesn't cut it for real learning environments and programs and software and that kind of stuff. We had classroom sets, Google Chromebooks that we used in the school, and we decided pretty much immediately to send those home with each student. So each student had the exact same laptop that they were able to use for all of their classes. And in the event that there were multiple siblings in a house, each one of those siblings got their own. Within a couple of weeks, we had all of our kids up and running and everyone had the same access. Finding resources that provide access to technology turned out to be the easiest part of the transition to remote learning. Many of our students are not old enough to just be on their own. And so if families had to go to work or go run errands or go to the store, oftentimes the kids had to go. We had students who were often trying to take classes from behind the counter where their mom works with customers coming in and out. These all added to the challenges that Imago Day students already face as teenagers, sometimes even intensifying them. The most challenging part was the adolescence piece. That is to say that It's really difficult physiologically for your eyes to even decide what to focus on because there's so much going on on the screen. 
And it's especially difficult for a 12-year-old um, who is right in the throes of, of adolescence. They're often preoccupied with uh, what they look like and what others look like. And, and they're preoccupied with, you know, what their Zoom space looks like. They were so worried about other things that sometimes it was very hard for them to focus on being present and being there in class. Honestly, just kind of a lack of uh, ability to supervise. When the kids are right in front of you in a classroom, you can really connect with them and look them right in the eye and have a connection and they know exactly what's going on. And when, when it's filtered through a whole bunch of people, it just makes that connection so much more difficult and it makes it much easier for a kid to zone out. The absence of structure and regular routine can lead to frustration and mood swings. For children in low-income families, the pandemic can be especially hard. We had issues as well with kids being very, very tired. They were staying up too late. They were so out of their routine. They're so used to coming to school and, and having that be a big part of their routine that when that was thrown off and being at home all day, it was just a huge challenge all around. And that challenge is directly related to the fact that our parents can't afford to be with the kids all the time and on top of them all the time about, you know, making sure they're signing into class and making sure that they're doing what they need to do. Pascual Chito Ramirez has two daughters at Imago Day, Fernanda, who was 11 years old, and Laura, who was 13. He says his family was able to share childcare responsibility with the girls' grandparents. And by the end of the spring semester, they had figured things out. The beginning, it was weird because of this were in home, and sometimes they were sleeping, not on time, uh, on the computer, you know, because uh, it's different. But uh, the last days before uh, getting this break, they were good. I mean, comfortable. So it's not exactly the same, but uh, at least they're still doing school, you know. Both daughters of Marianella Zarate have also adjusted. Their mom, however, had to sacrifice half of her working hours to help her children with school. At week was 64 hours, sometimes 66 hours. But right now I just have like 34 because I have to lose those 32 hours. Because I have to be there to take care of them and find someone who will stay with them when I'm not there. It was kind of hard at the beginning, but little by little, we make it. (laughs) The pandemic has affected the whole school community. Teachers had to invent solutions on the fly, often facing the same frustration level as their students. Above all, they strove to motivate them and to help their students engage. Here is Cameron Taylor. Our teachers, by and large, are overachievers and are used to being really, really good at their jobs. And and while they were still great at online learning, you just don't accomplish as much. And so that was actually challenging from an emotional standpoint. Smaller groups and one-on-one online meetings between students and teachers are some of the things that have worked. PE lessons and art class became a relief to students and gave them a chance to reconnect with their friends. The attendance for those classes was especially high because those classes acted as fun break from what was otherwise a kind of grueling day. So we really treated it that way. We didn't grade anything and we just made the um, activities, you know, designed to be super fun. 
Imago Day is a community of more than 50 families, some of them migrants and refugees. All of the students qualify for free or reduced lunch programs. The school's mission is to break the cycle of poverty through education. The pandemic, however, is making that goal harder to achieve. Kids living in poverty and uh, kids living you know, more in the margins financially are impacted by being out of school significantly more than families that can't afford to stay home and make sure their kids are doing what they need to do or can get tutoring or, you know, have access to uh, online learning resources in addition to what the school is providing. So, you know, our kids are definitely more impacted by being out of school. They've got more to make up now than most students. The safety and health of their kids will always be a priority for the parents. We are a little bit worried about the pandemic. We understand now that it's more safety for them and for everybody without having classes at school. I think they're okay if they don't back to school again. That story was produced by Elisa Ivanitskaya. I recall meeting Andre Newman once, about two years ago, when he was part of a group that came to the studio to talk about that year's Juneteenth celebration. Andre Newman impressed me immediately with his great sense of humor, his knowledge about topics like history and nutrition, and his total confidence on the microphone. I made a mental note to ask him back sometime, to share his seemingly boundless energy with the community. I will never get that chance. Andre Newman was many things a devoted family man, an entrepreneur with a food truck business, a practitioner of acro yoga, and apparently he was also one hell of a karaoke singer. He was also a friend of Adiba Nelson. Right now she, and so many others, are hurting because he's gone. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. As a writer, it is rare that I find myself at a loss for words. My friends and I joke about how they can describe a feeling or thought, and I can effortlessly find the perfect word for it. But this? This is different. As I sit and remember my friend Andre Newman, I find a million different words flooding my brain, but not a single one of them adequately sums up the man that I, and so much of Tucson, knew and adored. Many of you knew him as the purple food truck guy, or the acrobat guy. I'd like to tell you about the Andre I knew. Words like father come to mind when I think about Andre. Andre was father to 13-year-old Savan, and to say she was his crown and glory would be an understatement. He was her teacher of life. How to succeed in business, how to stand firm in your word, how to love others and yourself. Fully. I met Savan when she was just 10. She had her mother, Serena's calming quietness, and her father's passion for standing up for what's right. She spoke, and I didn't hear a child raised on Nickelodeon, but rather the wisdom of an elder, an old soul. I mentioned this to Andre, and all he could say was, yeah, man, she's something else, as he beamed with pride. I had to remind him that he helped to shape much of that something else because he too was something else. Words like partner come to mind 
when I think of Andre. Andre was a partner in life with Serena, and his appreciation for her and support of her was palpable. Her art lines the walls of the home they share, and in giving me a tour of this beautiful little sanctuary they carved out for themselves in the barrio, he openly gushed about her talent. Pictures of him physically supporting her with ease as she stood on his shoulders told me that this ease of support probably extended past acrobatics and into his love for Serena. I don't pretend to know the inner workings of anyone's relationship, but I can tell you that seeing the small ways he honored his partner in life translated to enormous love in my eyes. One of my favorite words for Andre, unapologetic. Andre was who he was and he said what he said and that was that. And as we say in the Black community, I love to see it. Whether it was speaking on issues of race and social justice, healthy living, entrepreneurship, manhood and masculinity, or who was the best soul singer of all time, you could not tell Andre that James Brown was not king. To watch Andre speak was to see passion in action. His convictions were strong and true, and even if you didn't like what he was saying, because he was so animated in his speaking, you had to stop what you were doing and listen. And odds are you'd find yourself contemplating his theories and hypotheses later in the day. Andre was a fierce champion and advocate for Tucson's Black and Brown community. It was beautiful to watch him speak to us and for us and with us. To know Andre was to love him instantly. To karaoke with Andre was to graciously accept defeat. For a man who was small in stature, he was gigantic in heart. If there was something you needed and he had it, it was yours. Andre was and will forever be a giant among us. He had a little bit of that rare magic that told you that he walked with his ancestors at his back. Fearless, humble, loving, king. Andre, we miss you with a fierceness not seen before. Until we meet again. Rest in power, my friend. Rest in power. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to this show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. You can find more essays from Adiba on her website, The Full Nelson, and at thelily.com. And now the third in a five-part series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people and gender identity. Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts on the forefront of understanding. Next, Laura Markowitz brings us an interview between a transgender boy and a transgender man. 
When 16-year-old Noah James came out as trans his freshman year of high school, he wished that he knew an adult trans man who could give him life advice. Scotty Pignatella welcomed the opportunity to be interviewed by Noah. Pignatella is 48 years old and works as an engineer at Raytheon. Here are excerpts from their conversation with original music by Noah James. I anxiously await your reply I'm not crying, there's just something in my eye And if I think too much, will I fall underground? I want things to just be okay Should I hunker down and wait another day? And if I don't touch it, will I just disappear? Well, I'm Noah. I just came out as trans, like, a year ago, probably. Congrats, man. Um, A lot of this for us is going to be kind of advice for younger trans males. So I was just curious, are you publicly out to a lot of people, or are you more stealth? Um, That's changed over my lifetime. I had a fairly public transition because I transitioned at work in my 20s. At some point, though, I kind of went stealth, and then I was stealth for about 10 years, and I realized that that became another closet. So I decided to not do that anymore, and that started another coming out process, if you will. So I'm pretty much publicly out. It's it's kind of scary to think what is going to be the discrimination. Like, what, what do you see what often? What could happen? Yeah. You know, for, for anybody who's younger, you think safety first. You have to judge every situation for itself. You know, there may be some situations where you really don't want to be out, maybe publicly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm out in as many places as I can be. But at the same time, I don't walk around always with the sign (laughs) or with a rainbow flag on the top of my hat. Because sometimes it doesn't make sense. And in some situations, it may not be safe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Messed up his brain Mama's scared Cause he's losing weight Snow is white And blood is red And both Now stain his porcelain head people who want to be allies and are even our allies they just get it wrong a lot of the time or um there's a lot of confusion uh, between sexuality and gender identity and then confusing even things like gender non-conformity to being transgender and trying to relate experiences that they have to my own where like saying that oh yeah i hated dresses too i'm just like you and it's like people who are cisgendered they don't have to think about how to fit in so there's a lot of um, well-meaning ignorance. That's a good term for it, well-meaning ignorance. So you came out, like, during working. <laughs> I've, I've got on my Facebook page that I came out when I was five because <laughs> there really wasn't a coming out process, but that's the first time that I started having trouble. I started having the problems of not fitting in 
and being painted into a, a gender box that I didn't want any part of. It started in kindergarten when they had us out playing in the yard and they wanted everybody to line up and I went and lined up with all the other boys where I belonged. I'd been playing with them, I got along with them and I didn't line up with the aliens. And I had a teacher come and get me and say, no dear, you're confused. And grab me out of that line and go throw me into the other one while all the other kids were laughing. And I heard of a little river bend so far away won't see any other men and the birds and the bees and the wind and the trees sing for me and i heard of a town beside the sea and there we'll go and we will find our peace no need to fear Do you feel like you conform now just to make yourself more comfortable or other people? Like male gender norms? Yeah. Do I force myself into that to make other people? You know, I make myself comfortable. And there there are some things where I am not painting in the line, so to speak. But for the most part, I blend in really well. But I do what I like to do, not because society says I should. I, I try to be authentic to myself. For me now, I feel like I'm starting to pass more. And now it's like guys are painting their nails now. And I'm like, maybe I can. But it also just makes me uncomfortable. So there's like areas where you just have to kind of swim through and be like, am I happy with this? Is this something I'm doing for me or other people, you know? I think we worry about everything that we do being judged by other people, right? If you're worried about passing, you're worried about everything you're doing and how somebody's going to read you mm -hmm. every moment of the day that you're outside. It takes a lot of energy out of you every day. It's disconnection with your body, so it starts first thing in the morning. What do I have to do to try to make myself look right mm -hmm. before you can walk out the door? And then you get out the door and somebody misgenders you at the bus stop. And then you get to school or work and you run into people who want to be bullies and it just it compounds all day long. Somebody that you meet for the first time you get treated completely differently whether they read you as a male or a female. You're waiting to see what they're going to do so that you have to change your reaction to how they read you. And you have to make a decision on whether you're going to correct them or not. And then you have to deal with the rest of the conversation. You have a storm of things going on in your brain. So how do you navigate that? Is it, um, is it something you think you grow out of or... The farther you get with transition, as well as whatever medical interventions it takes to help you be comfortable, because that's different for everybody too, yeah. that will all combine to help you settle into, okay, this is who I am. And when you're not fighting how other people read you all day long, yeah, that stress level goes down a lot. If you could have gone back in time and given yourself a general piece of advice, what would it be? Probably the most important thing I would say to any of us is to be patient and try to love yourself as best you can as you are and give yourself time to grow into who you are.
right there. That's what is the hardest. Being patient, Being patient. Oh, that hurts. is the worst. <laughs> Even though I've only been out one year, I, it's it's been my entire life. It's so hard to be patient. I just want it not to be a big deal anymore. Something that I can I can be transitioned and somewhere along the journey where I'm comfortable, and just have it be me. Like I'm Noah and I'm here. <laughs> when I was younger, I didn't have the word transgender. What the words I had was like ghost. I feel like I'm inhabiting someone else's body. I never connected it with mine. There's never like a day off where I'm I'm fine. I mean, there's days where dysphoria is lighter and I don't think about it as much. But it's still there. It's still there. And that's probably the most exhausting thing. That's part of why some of the suicide rates are so high is because people get tired. There's another study that came out that said that just even using a trans kid's preferred name reduces their risk of suicide by, I think, 60 or 70 percent. You don't have to deal with as much of a disconnect. But you hit it on the head with, you know, being a teenager, sometimes things are very intense and things can seem very life or death. And that is part of being a teenager, unfortunately. And that'll settle down a little bit at some point. But in the meantime, we've got to help you guys live through that. You hear the statistics and it's just terrifying. For God's sake, don't be a statistic. (laughs) Please don't be a statistic. I mean, every last one of you kids is wonderful. There's no reason to do that. And if this helps anyone out there, not do something horrible to themselves, then it's been well worth it. It's really nice to hear someone from the other side. I think sometimes it's scary thinking that mm-hmm. either like half of us are going to die off or we're not going to make it, that, that there is a hope and there is a goal and there is a future. That was Noah James interviewing Scotty Pignatella. The story was produced by Laura Markowitz with music written and performed by Noah James. To learn more about support groups for transgender teens and to hear other episodes of Youth Crossing Gender Borders, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And tune in next week for episode four. I would love to like go look at the Barbies. That was my favorite thing to do, but I was always nervous that someone was going to be like, why are you looking at the Barbies? When children don't fit into the binary of boy or girl, it's a challenge for parents to find spaces for their kids to express themselves freely. Riding the Ambiguity Train, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Elisa Ivanitskaya. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.